Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website at subchina.com. SupChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the U.S.-China trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from the home of one of our guests today. You've heard him on the show before, our good friend Jim Millward. More on Jim and our topic, Anon. First, let us greet our beloved co-host, the best-known China watcher in all of Central Tennessee, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, Editor-in-Chief of SubChina. Jeremy, I know, don't let that go to your head, and... Uh, Greet, greet the good listeners. Kaiser, you, uh, my friend, are a Yankee carpetbagger. And the evidence <laughs> of this is that in Tennessee, we call it Middle Tennessee, not Central Tennessee. Okay. But thank you. Thank you very much for the uh, kind welcome. I appreciate it. Zhongtun. What is Zhongtun? You're a Zhongtun man. Okay。天哪西州。哦,天。哦,it's China's treatment of ethnic minorities uh, in the PRC, what Beijing still sometimes calls minority nationalities or xiaoshu minzu, uh, has understandably been at the center of a great deal of discussion and the focus of a great deal of criticism. This has assumed a new urgency in the, in the last 18 months with revelations of what is happening in Xinjiang, especially the so-called re-education training camps to which hundreds of thousands and perhaps even a million Uyghurs and Kazakhs have been sent on suspicion, often just completely... You know, fictitious suspicions of, of radical Islamist or separatist uh, tendencies or sympathies. Today, we're going to get an update on what has happened in Xinjiang in recent months. Uh, we'll discuss how the situation in Xinjiang relates to what has happened in Tibet, and we'll delve into the PRC's approach to ethnic policy. We're also going to look at the the ways to address and hopefully improve a situation that has become dire indeed. We're delighted to be joined by Tashi Rabge, who's research professor of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University here in D.C. Tashi directs the research initiative on multinational states, RIMS, 
RIMS, and the Tibet Governance Lab. She did a seven-year research exchange with uh, Chinese State Council Development Research Center, uh, the Institute for Minor for Ethnic Minority Affairs. Uh, that's the it's the Guoyuan Fajian Yejiu Zhongxin Minzu Yejiu Suo. She is also the co-founder, along with her sister Losong Rabge, of Machik, which is an NGO that works on education, on capacity building, on, on innovation in Tibet. Uh, Tashi, we have wanted to get you on the show for a very long time, and we're just thrilled that you could finally finally come on. Oh, good to be here. Oh, we're really glad to have you. We are also joined there, uh, not here in uh, my holler in Nashville, but there in Washington by Jim Millward, whose home has been taken over these last few days by the inconsiderate guest, Kaiser, and our colleague, <laughs> Jason. Thank you very much for that, Jim. You, you really are a hero for putting up with that man. Jim is a professor of history at Georgetown and is the author of several books about Xinjiang and Central Asia and has been on our program a number of times in the past to talk about Xinjiang-related issues. Uh, his books include very serious academic books as well as very light reads that are uh, kind of you know, an intelligent person's version of a dummy's guide to Xinjiang. So look them up. We'll post some links. Jim, welcome back to Seneca. I'm sorry I couldn't be there in your house with you. Oh, well, thanks for having me in my own home. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm pleased to be here too. No, I'm very pleased to be on the show. It's like you're invited to a duck dinner. You bring the duck. Right. Thanks for the duck, Jim. <laughs> uh, Jim, let's start actually with a, with an update on Xinjiang. There have been still more revelations of the extent of the camps, uh, including most recently there's been evidence uncovered by, I guess, first by Emily Fung of the Financial Times of forced labor. Uh, the Associated Press also reported on forced labor. Uh, they tracked shipments uh, of athletic wear to a company called Badger, which is in my home state of North Carolina in Statesville, I think. Um, there's also been more responses from American lawmakers about this. So uh, why don't you catch us up first? Uh, what more have we learned and how are American and other international responses taking shape? Yeah, well, as far as we know, uh, the situation certainly hasn't gotten any less severe. Uh, the camps are either still expanding in their capacity and area or uh, certainly haven't, haven't, haven't shrunk any. Um, And as you mentioned, the new development right now is that we're seeing more and more work facilities or factories uh, in these camps. Um, And recent reporting has has revealed that this has become a sort of serious part of what the camps camps are doing, that people, once they, quote unquote, graduate from learning Chinese uh, and sort of move on, then they're put into work in some kind of facilities, making textiles, shoes, um, some um, packaging, maybe electronics uh, assembly, those sorts of things, um, for a period of time which we don't which we don't know about. So this is sort of the, the new development. Um, I guess more broadly, over the last few months, one thing we've seen has been, uh, after evolving for some time, the official story about what these camps are has now sort of settled down. Um, at first, of course, as the listeners may know, China denied the existence of the camps. And then for a brief while, they floated a story that some 400,000 people had been relocated from their villages in southern Xinjiang to jobs programs elsewhere. Uh, and then when finally confronted at the UN about this, this story that they were uh, vocational schools uh, emerged. And China has since put out a, 
uh, propaganda blitz backing that story up with uh, articles and op-eds in Global Times. Uh, And in particular, domestically in China, uh, CCTV released a 15-minute video piece that shows the camps, shows people working there, shows uh, usually very not well-spoken, not well-educated Uyghur peasants uh, speaking in halting Chinese and thanking the party for looking after them by interning them in these facilities. Explain to me how this is positive propaganda. Uh, well, it's funny. One can, of course, look at it in different ways. But the argument is, um, you know, I, I thank the party because uh, otherwise I would have listened to this extremist propaganda, or this ex- these extremist messages. I didn't know. But thanks for, for putting me in these schools. Propaganda. Well, but no, thanks for putting me in these schools. I now have... have you know, learned how to take the right road. So it's this kind of... This is a familiar uh, type of propaganda in China, I I think. I mean, uh, I recall uh, the TV series. I don't know if it's still running with the... It was a provincial TV station. I don't think it was Hunan. Maybe Hunan. And she interviewed prisoners on death row. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there is a kind of a a tradition of this prison confessional and it's an example to society. So I I think the reception, I I think it is effective in China. It's not effective in America or, you know, Western countries, but... No. Yeah, and and uh, sorry, a lot of, you know, Maoist echoes, of course, very part of this whole whole thing. It is a a, a re-education... Kind of so plan. if we could um, switch uh, geographies and peoples, Tashi, how does the situation in Xinjiang relate to what's been going on in Tibet and ethnically Tibetan areas on the plateau? Um, just this week, there's been a little bit of news, some reported self-immolations. But uh, before that, you know, the last six months or year or so, um, much of the news media coverage of oppression of ethnic minorities in China has been dominated by Xinjiang. So what's going on in in Tibet now? Well, in fact, what's been going on in Tibet has been continuous throughout this period. There were many similar practices put into place in Tibet prior to the recent kinds of policies we're describing now and really making a public issue. Uh, In fact, I think it's well known and well talked about, well discussed, that Chen Chuenguo was originally the first party secretary of the Tibet Autonomous Region, and that is where a lot of these uh, practices were put into place uh, initially. Policing and... Policing, the securitization of uh, the whole mm, issue right. uh, of Tibet, and we saw literally the, the internment of innocent people arbitrary, kind of random. If you had traveled to India, that would be a basis of rounding people up. Um, So uh, we had seen this since 2012 in Tibet and continues today. Tashi, sorry to interrupt. Can I ask, did they construct new buildings uh, in Tibet to house camps? Yeah. Well, we... As far as I know, I haven't seen the kind of evidence that uh, we've seen now uh, in Xinjiang, where satellite images are uh, showing us the extent of the new constructions. Uh, a lot of the Tibetans uh, who are rounded up, they uh, are rounded up into school facilities uh, that are uh, used uh, for political purposes now, uh, and uh, they've been, they've been using uh, buildings that already exist. As I far see. as I know, if I can just jump in, so those kinds of repurposed facilities, schools, hospitals being used for re-education, quote-unquote re-education camps, they um, 
were in Xinjiang before Chen Chenguo got there as well, uh, on, a, on a much smaller scale. And so the the departure is in the last year, year and a half, with this sudden expansion of size and the uh, appearance of new purpose-built facilities much, on a much higher scale than we've seen before. So if we turn back to Tibet, has there been an escalation of, of this kind of repressive... Uh, these repressive uh, tactics in Tibet at the same time as there has in Xinjiang? The scale does not seem to be uh, what we're hearing about in Xinjiang, but Mm. the practices just continue. And I think there's a lot of contradictory uh, practices being put into place uh, that uh, are hard to explain, really. And so increasingly, I think the surveillance through many different means is higher than than ever before in history, even just to circumambulate around the Potala Palace, for example. Local Tibetans talk about it's that it's harder than to, you know, uh, get into an airport. And you have to do this six times. You have to go through a, kind of an entire process of... With, with uh, each circumambulation. Yeah, with each circumambulation, wow. you do this you know that many times and i think tibet has some certain characteristics that really set it aside for example one of the security measures is to put a fire extinguisher on every block right so that is something (laughs) unique to tibet um but none of it makes sense and of course all it does is seed resentment it all it does is make people feel very alienated more alienated than they already felt uh so there's a lot of counterproductive things Hmm. uh, going on absolutely so um, I, I just want to uh, quickly ask about self-immolations because I mentioned, I, you know, I noticed uh, just in the last week there were, I think, three new reports. What have the numbers been like of self-immolations? Because the news media hasn't mm-hmm. really been covering it that I've been aware of in the last right. six months or so. Well, the total since they began, uh, which was in 2009, is 155 self-immolators. I think what's really significant is how this is sat with uh, the Tibetan people. I think that there's a kind of silent mourning going on. Whether or not it's being covered in the media, it really sits on people's conscience. The fact that it is not something uh, narrowly limited to monks and nuns. In particular, I'd point out that during the 18th Party Congress, where we saw the change in power, there were 28 self-immolations. That's Mm. pretty much one every day. And it was, you know, monks and nuns, uh, as well as, you know, women and men, uh, older people, a high school student. So, you know, really across uh, the the breadth of society is really involved in this. And and the fact that this is pretty much the first time in in modern human history we've seen self-immolation used as a political tool, this significantly creates a weight, I think, in the Tibetan people's consciousness. And this is, I'm talking about people inside, to the extent that I've been working inside and work with, continue to work with people inside. And I think that this is seeding future consequences because it is not something, because it's not in in the media headlines, it doesn't go away for uh, a Tibetan person. Uh, We're all trying to make sense of what's happening in Xinjiang and Tibet. And both Jim and you, Tashi, have, have talked about the importance of understanding changing minzu policy. Uh, We're calling it minzu policy because I think uh, minority nationality policy isn't a particularly good translation. Minority ethnicity policy, ethnic policy. But so I think we're we're just uh, for our listeners who don't speak Chinese, we're we're going to go with minzu policy uh, just as a a word here. Uh, This is after, after you, Tashi. But 
in order to understand it, in order to make sense of it, I think we need to look at how that concept has gelled. I mean, I think it, it has roots that reach back. I think, Jim, you would probably say pre-Qing, right? Before the uh, before the, the Qing Empire, which did incorporate a lot of these uh, these these non-Han areas into the empire. Um, yeah, so, uh, well, first, when we say this word minzu, uh, a lot of your listeners do know Chinese, some may not. This is a relatively recent neologism, which came actually from Japanese coinage. Hmm. And it was originally meant to translate uh, words such as the German Volk. Ah. Right? It, with the rise of nationalism, uh, as peoples in East Asia were trying to come up with terms to reflect those kinds of ideas. Um, and it's later been glossed in China. It, it's been used to gloss Russian terms. So, so you know, the Russian term for nationality, nationalnost. Um, particularly after the Soviet period. Um, and one can go through the various terms you know, and, and ways it's been used. Now it's translated into English not as nationality, but as ethnicity sometimes. All of those translations are a little bit problematic because what we're really talking about is an idea and institutions that are evolving within China, just as sort of people's self-identity evolves and also as state institutions mm-hmm. have changed, right? So um, you mentioned the, the Qing dynasty and... Um, it's important to point out that one of the ways in which the Qing dealt with its empire, dealt with the fact that it had a very diverse population, uh, both within China proper, but of course, once Mongolia was added and, and Xinjiang and Tibet, and of course, the Manchus themselves, they were very aware of what we would call ethnic difference of these peoples. And they did as empires do. They had a different approach to different peoples with different administrations, sometimes different legal systems, different types of officials in charge of different groups, depending on where they were. And again, this is not unique to to China. It's something that empires do. You can call it imperial pluralism. That's sort of a fancy political science-y term. Sorry mm-hmm. about that, Jeremy. But, uh, <laughs> but, it, it, but, it, but at, at bottom, it's very pragmatic, right? And it's, it's as simple as, you know, you don't, for example, necessarily want to go in and insist that people in a new territory you've just taken control of uh, switch their religion, right? If you're an imperial government, that's asking for trouble. So those sorts of things were very characteristic of the Qing, and this is something that scholarship on, on the Qing Empire has revealed over the last 10, 20 years or so. And then, of course, by the time we get to the PRC period from the 1950s, uh, there was this new system which we call the Minzu system or Minzu policy, uh, which in its basic institutional features and some of the terminology looks like the same system that the Soviet Union implemented, which has been called you know, the affirmative action empire, uh, <laughs> terms like this, uh, which recognizes from the top down and categorizes the different peoples of the state um, and, and you know, gives them names. It channels resources to them. Sometimes it gives them a territorial, it, it gives them a territory, be it a you know, county or a prefecture or even province-sized territory. Area, right? So this is where we get the autonomous regions of Xinjiang uh, and, and, and Tibet, for example, from that. Um, now, generally it's thought that China simply adopted a Soviet system and they did adopt the forms of it. But there are some very important differences. For example, the Soviet system, in theory, allowed for secession of these peoples. That, of course, was you know, was theoretical, never, never <laughs> real. But nonetheless, you know, China would never sort of go that far. That's a fundamental difference. So if you see them as slavishly following Soviet practices, 
that's a significant difference. But I think also that there, in the underlying thinking, there's a lot of carryover from imperial China, a lot of carryover from the Republican period. You remember that you know the first flags of the, of the Republican period had five different colors, five stripes representing the, the five Minzu, mm. then of China. Right. That was, I would say, expanded to 56. But the same idea that this former empire would become a multinational state is carried through into the into the PRC uh, period. So that's when we talk about the Minzo system, that's roughly what what we're talking about. But now, uh, and this is a question for both of you, I think this has shifted, right? It seems to me that now there is a much more assimilationist approach. And if the Communist Party, you know, had their wildest dream, they would go back to 1949 and rewrite the policy to try and kind of han, hanhua everybody, assimilate everybody. Is that impression misguided or, or, or is there something there? I, I wouldn't say that it's an about face. I'm not sure there was a period when there wasn't an assimilationist uh, trend. Uh, mm. But that has accelerated, and I think particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, which caused a lot of anxiety yeah. among the Chinese leadership. Uh, and that's when we saw the, the language, you know, around Zhonghua Minzu, this new category that has come to be central, a central signifier for a lot of uh, intellectuals, thinkers on, on minority policy today. Uh, so what that has meant is that uh, the whole Minzu model that you've just described, Jim, uh, is being mobilized to uh, to really enhance the assimilationism. And this is a part of the problem, I think, that has led to the securitization of the uh, regions we're talking about, Tibet and Xinjiang. Yeah, uh, there's a, a white paper about Xinjiang came out just last, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and there's some really interesting, subtle but interesting changes in it. Um, the the way in which the Chinese Communist Party talks about ethnic difference and has been really since the eighties uh, was you know to have the fifty six minzu mm-hmm. right but then there was a recognition that there was something known as a Zhonghua minzu a Chinese minzu and in a formulation by uh, Fei Xiaotong a very famous anthropologist sure. he talked about this Zhonghua minzu uh, being a higher level identity that sits on top of and is a sort of the crystallization Trans-ethnic of national identity. But but and, and literally, I mean, he describes it as, as sort of higher and, and rising out of that. And the argument was you can have multiple forms of identity or multiple uh, you know, foci of identity. And that's something that you know anthropologists would, would, would agree with. In the recent white paper, though, you see the Zhonghua Minzu being talked about as the source, the foundation, the base of other Minzu. And there have been other pieces of propaganda and arguments that have suggested that this former idea of Fei Xiaotong is being flipped upside down. Yeah, it's a total inversion of history. <laughs> that there is something that everybody was Zhonghua Minzu, and they've deviated somehow from that. And this is a repetition, actually, of a line that Chiang Kai-shek took in the Republican period. He wasn't talking about Minzu, he talked about uh, Zhongzu, or he talked yeah. about race. Um, but he had argued that everyone was everyone in China, all the former imperial subjects of the Qing, were members of the yellow race event, uh, originally, and that they had since deviated for geographical and historical reasons, but that they would all end up being of Chinese again. So we're back to that kind of formulation without without race being uh, the terminology. Yeah, that, that recalls actually there was an editorial in the, um, 
where was it? It was, I think, in the Xinjiang Party paper, uh, maybe the Urumqi Urbao, um, by... The mayor of Urumqi, yeah. The ma- yeah, that's right. Yeah, the mayor, right. And, and he said that the idea that Uyghurs are Turkic is nonsense. Right. The Uyghurs <laughs> are not, they're not descendants of the Turkic people. They're only from Zhonghua. And that's precisely this new, this new line, this new argument about that. So they flipped this upside down, and, and, and this is really signaling the, the, the assimilationist direction, I think. Tashi, I'd love to hear about, I mean, I think there's really not much awareness outside of a very small circle of of scholarly types outside of China who follow it closely, but uh, to hear how people in China debate and discuss uh, the issue of Minzu policy, uh, I mean, not just within the party, but also maybe in in a broader public, there's this idea of this second generation of Minzu policy, a diardai Minzu zhengce. Can you tell us about what this second generation sort of means typically, what it's all about, and perhaps, you know, what we we can kind of learn from this debate that's happening about about the policy? Sure. I actually want to go one step back and talk about the Minzu framework and why that is in itself a a big problem uh, for uh, situations like Tibet. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So this framework, which was, as Jim pointed out, put together in the 1950s, the whole classification process of taxonomizing basically all of the people uh, in this new modern Chinese state, what it did was to flatten and to artificially make equal all these different kinds of subjectivities, some that were more or less invented or, or feels invented. There's this one really interesting case of uh, a study of what was thought of as a classic Chinese uh, 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 rural area based on field work in the 1930s. And these people later discovered in the 1950s that they were by Baizu, uh-huh. and they had not known that uh, ethnic label by before. So there's there's a, what we call state ethnogenesis going on as well, right. and this is entirely different than something like Tibet, for example, which was so distinctive there was no need to <laughs> be right. told it was what, what organically the right. One, In right. fact, the Tibet Tibetans were the only later classified Shaoshu Minzu who had an agreement with the central government in order to become incorporated into the People's Republic of China, mm. right? So there's no other Shaoshu Minzu with an agreement trying to explaining how this is stuck together. So so what, what's happened is that in this framework of 56 Minzu, you have apples and oranges being treated the same. So that is one major problem. And, and so what's happened is that uh, Chinese intellectuals and, and thought leaders have come along and said, we need to fix this. This is incoherent. And we have all this evidence of things not really having led to social cohesion, which mm-hmm. is absolutely true. Uh, so, so that's the thrust of who these second generation guys yes, are. Okay. Yes, and Professor Marong at Beijing University has been uh, pivotal. He, he was actually the the, the first person to valiantly, he tried very hard to change the conversation and change the thinking on how to... Sorry, Tashi, can, can you say his name again? Marong. Marong. Yeah. Marong. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. he's the, the chair of sociology and anthropology at Beijing University. Uh, because uh, so he his um, kind of maverick thinking uh, precipitated uh, uh, some of the security issues that arose uh, in the 
later in the decade. But he really started publishing uh, outside of academic journals, so really made a push to make it a public conversation mm. within uh, a broader uh, space. So he used to write about this, but buried in academic journals that nobody reads, and then he suddenly started writing about it very publicly. And this got picked up after all of the issues started to arise inside these regions. Essentially, he is referring to places like Tibet. He has sure. a strong concern about Tibet. And his solution was to, and he has a phrase for this, so to depoliticize the issue. And his recommendation was that this concept of minzu needed to be, he called it, Mm-hmm. To culturalize it, to make it a culture so that it's deracinated, it's taken away from any connection to a particular place. And it's just a floating identity that can be the same. You can be equally Tibetan in Lhasa as you can in Shanghai. But the truth is Tibetans tend not to live in Shanghai. Right. Even the ones who've been you know, taken out of uh, the region in order to, you know, there's an education program where they take middle schoolers out and they keep them in inland China and Navy for uh, many, many years uh, until they finish college. So that's a long time. And often they don't get to go back to their homelands in that period. Uh, and still, when they finish, they don't stay in Shanghai or Guangzhou, wherever they were educated, they all go back to Tibet. So this, uh, the fact of the matter because is... Because they have to. No, because, because they, have to go. they don't have to. They can find, there, there are ways to find, you know, jobs and, and opportunities in the inland areas. But overwhelmingly, I've interviewed many of these young people. They've been part of this program since, the, they've been having this program since, since 1988, and they, they go back. My point being that it was Professor Marong's idea is in theory, but in practice, not so meaningful. It's a lovely cosmopolitan fancy, yes. but it's just not, yeah. Right. Uh, so, it's so, but it, I, I'm interested. Did he get any pushback officially? Did, did were there people who who wanted to keep that idea sort of you know right. in the in the bowels of the ivory tower? He picked up a lot of incredible interest publicly. Uh, uh-huh. There were people, very high-profile uh, academics in other areas, like Huang Kang, for example, who writes about the economy and other areas, but they enthusiastically got behind this, and this is where the Diartai Minzu Zhengzi whole program emerged. Uh, and at the same time, officially, they got massive pushback, and especially led by Shaoshu Minzu intellectuals, mm. Hui and... Um, Mong- near Mongolians, right. for example, you know who didn't push back, generally speaking? The Tibetans. Tibetans right. and the Uyghurs. Right, you know why? Right, right. Because it's too darn dangerous. So I think this is really right. important to know that the people who have the most at stake were silent on this. Um, right. Um, so, but there was a lot of uh, you know pushback, and, and the Mongolians especially, they were meeting all over the world about Tasha, this. Tasha, give me a time frame. When was this conversation happening? When did this really cut? Sorry. So post-2008, it really ah, picked course, up right. speed. Um, and, and 2009, I imagine. This right. Was, you know, this so, so through this urgency, process, right? exactly. So throughout this process, I was in these uh, meetings with uh, uh, different uh, policy researchers about the issue of Tibet. And so I really really got a lot of insight into the degree to which they thought this was very dangerous, that it was highly unpragmatic, and that this, however much that this appealed to Chinese who really kind of idealized the the idea of America's approach to ethnicity, and this is what they want to implement in the PRC, that they, they, they couldn't do it institutionally. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up is, and thank you, um, Kaiser, for keeping Minzu untranslatable, because I, that's what I think it is. We have really made a mess of this concept. We used to translate it, uh, nationality, right, back in the day. Uh, and so there's the, the very important um, piece of uh, the constitutional um, provision called the, that establishes the Minzu Chu Zhifa, right, the autonomy law. 
And we used to translate it um, NRAL, Nationality Regional Autonomy Law. Then there was a time that we started to call it the Minority Regional Autonomy Law, right? And of course, Minzu doesn't mean minority because the Han are also Minzu, oh, right? right. Uh, but we did it anyway. So for a long time, we used to call it the MRAL. Uh, and these days, I think in the State Department and elsewhere, the, the, the standard way to write it is REAL, right? Regional uh-huh. Ethnic Autonomy Law. That is our standard in English and in academic discourse. But the truth is that in, in the PRC, in China, it is co- a contested uh, concept. Yeah. It's a contested term. Uh, and so Maron did try to uh, popularize the idea of Zuchun, which in Taiwan is easily used because they use that. That was a neologism too. Well, it was it was developed to uh, capture the idea of ethnicity in the U.S. as we use it in, in sociology. Right? Ah, I see. Zuchun. Okay. yeah. And so Maron did try in some of his writing to, uh, you know, uh, bring this concept into the whole conversation. I don't think it's stuck. And so we're still <laughs> trying to figure out how means I've heard that word apparently it didn't stick you know well, uh, yeah. uh, can I can I change tack I, I, I think uh, let's not get too much into the weeds about my wrong um, are there other are there other voices in this debate aside from my wrong that are offering an alternative uh, vision for ethnic policy in China that is not the post 49 policy and is not my wrong's vision y- yes is there any debate Yes, there is. And and so I wouldn't say that the Tiar Da Minzu Jiangsa is encompassed, that whole idea is encompassed by what Marong initially did. I think a lot of other people who aren't thought of as experts in the field have have pushed that forward uh, as, a, as more of a kind of a political agenda. Uh, and I do think that's been sort of um, uh, put away. Uh, but there are a lot of people trying now to think experimentally. And one that uh, Jim, you and I were just talking about recently is the whole idea of liberal multiculturalism, trying to you know apply that in, in China. So there are a lot of scholars, writers, uh, thinkers who are trying to conceive of China as a multicultural uh, political space. And the unfortunate thing is that that, uh, you know, China, just like trying to talk about rule of law in China is kind of nonsensical, right? right. Uh, and so to, to try to talk about multiculturalism in, in China is also kind of like that. Uh, so How do you mean? I mean, what do you run up against when you, I mean, is it simply just too much of a, a sort of fantastic liberal concept that, that it's just utterly inapplicable to Chinese realities? Or, or right. what is it? I think that our basic problem is that we're taking liberal concepts, uh, liberal frameworks, and project the, projecting them onto uh, a context where those conditions for a liberal society doesn't exist, right, to, authorita- to an authoritarian society, right? So when you have that, I think liberal multiculturalism, as it was developed in places like Canada or di- different European countries, you have a certain openness uh, for contestation, right? You do not have that in in the PRC right now. So to think that this can be easily applied is really misleading. And it's led to strange recommendations, like, for example, looking at the Manchu as an, a great example of how there has been multiculturalism in, in China. Because I, from a Tibetan point of view, from a lot of you know, uh, other point of view, you, you would Wait, say who, that... Who's, who's suggesting this? Oh, people who are you know out there. But publishing. I mean, that, that is yeah. a defeated nationality. That is, I mean, it's been so it's, completely. It's not presented as it's, defeated, even though uh, we would, one would think it is, and it's a, a dreadful example. But right, um, right, interesting, interesting. Yeah. I was just going to um, point out it's worth sort of stopping and thinking that, uh, recognizing that there was this debate about a very fundamental aspect of the PRC system you know, the Minzu system, mm-hmm. for a few years um, you know, between 
thought leaders, as, as, as Tashi said, um, scholars, who were really reflecting very, very different points of view about this fundamental, uh, fundamental issue. So that's quite interesting to, to note, right? I think what's happened in the last few years is that that debate has been, has been squelched. Right. And some people, it, it's hard to say exactly where that got cut off, but some people point to Xi Jinping had a uh, central work conference about ethnicity issues in that was 2014, yeah, and uh, that was interpreted. You know, his his various utterances there were interpreted by different sides of the debate in different ways. But looking back at it now, and James Labold has written about this and wrote about it at the time, actually as a significant event. She said that for ethnic problems, that you had to look not just at material issues, but at spiritual issues as well. And what he was signaling there was that raising standards of living through development clearly was not going to work as a way of resolving these separatist issues that you needed to look at, you know, Jing Shen Shang the kind of problems well, as well. That doesn't sound wrong to me. But yet, except yet. it was a it was a change over what was still what was up to that point the uh, at least officially stated approach to dealing with uh, separatism, at least in Xinjiang, which was once the you know, economic conditions have been improved, then people will you know, lose these separatist concerns. That was, you know, the argument behind the, you know, open up the Great West and sure, all of these sure. kinds of policies. So, and he also, you know, introduced a concept of the of the four, rec- uh, four recognizes, I think, that there are four Chinese things. So people have to recognize that they're Chinese in this way, that way. And so looking back on that now, he was, I think, signaling this this shift and and as people have picked up on those signals there's there's been less room for this debate and this is where the assimilationist turn has begun and it's going now okay so what's the goal what's the um, end goal of this i mean is it simply assimilation is that now what nationality policy and what minzu policy is aimed at uh, so thank you for, for asking that question, because I think uh, one of the things that gets overlooked in that moment that we just witnessed, where mm-hmm. everyone's trying to experiment with thinking about uh, the Minzu framework, uh, is something that also came out of uh, Professor Marron's writing. Uh, he talked about why we need to do this whole adjustment, right? The Chujang right? right? And he said one of the reasons is because we need to undermine this idea of Ling Tu Yi Shi. Uh-huh. So territorial Localism consciousness, territory. yeah, yeah. Um, so this is one of the things that I've been um, <laughs> trying to put out there is is the idea that to ethnicize the whole issue, especially of places like Tibet and Xinjiang, which are substantially different than all the other Minzus, right? And Xinjiang is different from Tibet. We're talking about very different Perhaps kinds of things. M- Mongols, you might for some purposes, including right? yep. with Xinjiang and Tibet. They are interesting in a very complex way and and very, very interested in the whole RIMS multination st- uh, state kind of uh, conversation. So it's, it's really interesting with the Neymangu, the, where that, that conversation can go. But the point is that there is this push to ethnicize all of this, and it is very self-conscious that this is to take away from the visibility or the clarity of the issue of, of the relationship to, to the land. And so uh, one of the things that I think through a new new approach, for example, through thinking about territorial politics or what I call territoriality, is to be able to see that again. It's been a long time since we've been able to make visible the relationship between peoples and the space, the political space that we're talking about. In the Tibetan case, it's very obvious because we're talking about an area of average elevation 14,000 feet. And we're talking about a very large area. It's the size of Western Europe. So this thing is distinctive. For a lot of people, as soon as they get onto the plateau, it's very uncomfortable 
physically uncomfortable. So there's something distinctive, but it's the same logic anywhere, which is that there is a relationship between this continuous uh, uh, inhabitation of this area by these people who have a distinctive language and culture, etc., uh, and uh, what their consciousness is, right? So it's not something yeah. that can Lean be to easily... Is here to stay. <laughs> right, it's yeah. not something that can be easily made into uh, a floating ethnic identity that can be, you know, anywhere. Uh, and so I, I think that in terms of you're asking where is this going, I think one is to try to obscure that and to, to really convince the, especially the global conversation, especially with academics, and, and believe me, it's been very successful, to talk about minority rights in a, an almost celebratory way. You know, and there's an assumption about the emancipatory potential of this framework that this is really going to solve the problem, and this is why we see so many uh, contradictory end results, like lifting up the Manchu example, like this is something good. So, can I maybe rephrase? I mean, I, hopefully, I won't butcher what you just said, but um, you know, so from the point of view of a of a Uyghur separatist, what you just said is very simple. Of course he will say or she will say, East Turkestan is our land and the Chinese took it over. That's why we have this you know, territorial, so-called territorial consciousness or historical consciousness. So in a way, what you're saying is that, uh, and, I, and I agree, and I understand what you're saying now, is that when uh, Western commentators or even Western you know, activists who are very concerned about these issues use the vocabulary of minorities, we talk about Uyghurs, Tibetans, maybe Mongols as minorities in China, we're obscuring the fact that really it's a it's a post-colonial situation or maybe still colonial situation and that these territories are they're majorities actually it's well right just so that people have been colonized exactly people in majorities in their own territory and those territories you know were taken over and we can argue the history about that and whether it was the Qing or whether it was 1949 or 1951 or 59 but you know basically that's a situation um, and and to talk about them as minorities of China then is to ob- ob- obscure that. Is, is is that what he what you meant, Tashi? I'm not. That yeah, I, that is a, a part okay. of it. Yes, and and so I I think that what you just said, Jeremy. What you just said, Jeremy, uh, is exactly right. Tibetans, uh, generally speaking, feel like a majority in the Tibetan region. And because, especially because uh, people tend not to grow roots. There are a lot of migrants. There's a lot of, you know, the state apparatus, of course, uh, firmly uh, based there, of course, and the military presence, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's, it rotates, it migrates, and it doesn't stay. There's no deep roots, uh, as I think that in Inner Mongolia and elsewhere, there are, there are deep roots now. There are settlements that are not going away. Um, but in that sense, then Tibetans do have this continuing sense of being a majority on this land. Right. And, so and that's different from that Xinjiang, I think, because um, there are a lot of Han people who've been in Xinjiang s- since the 50s. I'm even related to some of them. And they think of that as, you know, their place. They're not going anywhere else. They have a very nice life in Kalamayi. I don't think there's an equivalent to that in Tibet, is there? There certainly is in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that That's fascinating. I think uh, I've heard, Jim, you, you've argued this before. I, I know that it's a topic that, Tasi, you've also tackled quite extensively. Uh, this idea that China historically has actually shown quite a bit of creativity, quite a bit of maybe uh, flexibility when it comes to understanding territoriality, to use your word, Tasi. Uh, you have, you know, one country, two systems. You have this whole system of autonomous regions. You have special economic zones. You have, you know, things like Shanghai, the free trade zone, where there's a different system of governance uh, on a territory that's still notionally part of the People's Republic of China. 
Can you share your ideas about territoriality in China and how I, I, you think maybe Beijing could draw on this? And I want to turn first to you, Tashi, because you've done really interesting work in this thing that I mentioned at the beginning, RIMS, uh, which which stands for uh, the Research Initiative on Multinational States, where you've actually gone to other geographies where there are active separatist movements or, or where there are ethnicities with a strong territorial claim. For example, the Basques, the Quebecois. Uh, the Kurds, maybe? Have you done Kurds? And I guess the Scots, right? <laughs> uh, can you talk about that and what lessons? Well, I think what was really interesting to me is you, earlier you said that the Basques are sending a delegation to China. They've requested that they uh, send a delegation and that RIMS facilitate this visit. And the Chinese uh, scholars who were present at the meeting um, warmly uh, reacted to Great. that. So we're, we're working out that that, <laughs> that whole project, which will be really exciting because they want an opportunity to uh, give presentations on their model oh, of autonomy. Oh, oh. And um, so we, it, immediately uh, they were invited to Shanghai, Beijing, but also to Hohot. There's a new institute established in, uh, in, in Air Mongolia to look at different approaches to multi-nation states. And so uh, so this you're, you're absolutely right. The Inter-Mongolians have great potential to facilitate new kinds of conversations in a way that I think in Tibet and Xinjiang, it's kind of going to be difficult yeah. for the time being. <laughs> but it, it has been a really wonderful opportunity to really explore some ideas about how to be flexible and creative around uh, thinking about rearrangements of the existing structure. And I'm really, really pleased, especially we were able to have have uh, some very senior scholars coming from elite institutions in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, and elsewhere, Chengdu as well, uh, to participate uh, in this meeting that involved a lot of political theorists from these places that you've mentioned, from Scotland and Quebec and um, elsewhere, uh, but really focusing on the Basque experience, which has been remarkable. So a few weeks before we had our meeting this June, uh, ETA, the, their homegrown terrorist movement, self-dissolved, right, right to great uh, you know, flourish. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, they destroyed all their weapons and they, they put out a, a statement saying, you know, there's been a historical need for our, for us to exist, but that cycle is over and now we are choosing to shut ourselves down. So that was the natural conversation. How does uh, that kind of political violence choose to shut itself down, right? So this was the kind of conversation we were able to have with these senior scholars. And the, the core of the meeting was really to say, can we reframe the issues so that we're looking at uh, rearrangements um, special status uh, arrangements that can be achieved. And what are some good examples of that? Wow. So there's so much possibility with this, you know, thinking about territoriality in, in new ways. And um, I mean, I'm trying to argue anytime I get a chance to talk about this, that, that China and you know, Imperial China has been doing this for a long time. If I can tell a very brief historical anecdote. Um, in uh, the 1830s, in the Kashgar area, the Qing had problems with a Central Asian state known as Kokand, and they were sending traders in, and friction came up, there was an incursion. Um, in the end, the way the Qing dealt with this was by forming a treaty, having a treaty with the Kokandis. And that treaty allowed Kokandi merchants to live in Kashgar, to tax other merchants, to follow their own laws, uh, and to basically enjoy uh, extraterritoriality uh, in Kashgar in order to deal with this problem of, of merchants on the frontiers who wanted to trade. So there's 1835. The Manchu officials in, in charge of that and dealing with those issues were then transferred down to the southern coast 
where they dealt with some of the coastal regions, uh, coastal issues there having to do with, obviously, you know, the British, the British traders. Right, right, right. And so if you look again from that perspective at the Treaty of Nanking, so 1841, uh, and its implementation over the next couple of years, what do you see? Uh, you see the creation of trade enclaves, the treaty ports. You see extraterritoriality. You see allowing a certain amount of merchant autonomy. Uh, and you see what's called most favored nation clause, a little bit confusingly. But what that essentially says is what the British got, other nations got too, right? Now, we traditionally look at this as obviously that, you know, something this is subjected, I mean, something visited on them. Imposed upon, imposed which, which on it them. is, of course. Right. I don't mean to downplay the imperialism of the British. Uh, but I think we, you know, amidst all the talk about a century of humiliation, you need to recognize that the Qing dealt with that in a very creative way. They didn't give the British what they wanted. They gave them trade enclaves on the frontiers. They ceded a little bit of sovereignty, letting the barbarians deal with their own legal issues uh, in these treaty ports, and basically solved the situation of the of the you know the British and other Westerners on the on the coast the same way they dealt with inner Asian problems. Um, if you go back to the Song Dynasty, there were Arab traders in you know, Guangzhou, in Canton now. They enjoyed many of the same kinds of privileges within their cantonments uh, as the treaty port foreigners did later on. So, Jim, sorry to interrupt. Are you suggesting that there's a historical precedent for the Chinese government, for the Communist Party, to allow Uyghurs and uh, Tibetans well, and yeah. uh, uh, to have a real autonomy? Yeah, so look at what has happened under the PRC, right? The special economic zones, one country, two systems, autonomous regions. These are all versions, versions of the same kind of creative thinking about territoriality, uh, sort of, you know, reallocating sovereignty in, in creative ways in order to deal with problems of ethnicity, with problems or with issues of ethnicity, with issues of foreign trade and so on. And I'm saying that China was actually implementing these, and this is why it's not simply a Soviet system, right? They're following much older Chinese traditions with this. They're turning their back on those approaches, I would say, and, and chasing the you know, the will of the wisp of a, you know, a homogeneous national identity, which, of course, has never really worked very well anywhere and doesn't really exist. Um, so I'm saying that China should actually look to its own traditions for uh, creative ways of dealing with territoriality and sovereignty uh, as a way of addressing the problems in Xinjiang and, and, and Tibet. But is there any evidence, Jim, that um, any of the global criticism of China as regards... Tibet and more recently Xinjiang is sinking in at all. Are there any signs Beijing might be re-evaluating its current policies? I don't think so. Not yet. No, they've 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 really you know buckled down, um, and you know behind the and, and, and pumped out propaganda as I was saying behind the new line. There is more global pushback, um, not just from a few Western countries, but recently we've seen. Um, you know, Malaysia at the top political levels have made statements about this. Uh, just the other day in Indonesia, the uh, Ulema Council, um, which is the sort of you know the the highest Islamic group in, in Indonesia, was calling on the Indonesian president to condemn what's going on in in Xinjiang. There've been and the the Islamic um, what is it the organization of Islamic cooperative states or something like that also tweeted at least a, a statement. Right, they had a briefing about it, so they are publicly talking about it at least, right. 
Uh, and so, and that's important. That represents 57 you know, Muslim nations internationally, 1.8 billion people. So it may be beginning to filter up into you know, the, the political levels of the Muslim world. So let's talk a little bit about the global public conversation, uh, both on Tibet and Xinjiang. Uh, but let's start with Tibet and you, Tashi. Um, do you think we've tended, um, and uh, that is especially here in the United States, to frame the issue too much through the eyes of Richard Gere? <laughs> By which uh, you mean U.S.-China relations rather than... No, I don't mean U.S.-China okay. relations. I mean a kind of a hippie, mystic um, <laughs> okay, really, kind you of mean idea Gere. that, you know, Tibet is this uh, place where you can be enlightened and that's why we care. I, that's what I think one of the problems in um, the discussion in in the United States and much of Europe has been is that the hippies kind of took over the conversation. Kurdistan has no appeal to the hippies, right? Mm. Well, I wish it were just that. Um, I I also feel that um, there's a lot of uh, conversation around that uh, in elite Chinese circles, and at the same time, there's a lot of exoticization of Tibet, uh, in, you know, in those kinds of communities too. So uh, I, I think that the the really uh, prominent issue that needs to be looked at, I think, uh, very critically, is about um, the shrinking of uh, what we can talk about and how we can perceive the problem. And, and I can really only speak to Tibet on this. I know Xinjiang is a whole other kettle of fish. It has its own um, historical sort of trajectory that's different. Um, but in the case of Tibet, it was really through the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and that moment, Tiananmen Square, you know, the massacre there. And in the aftermath of that, that uh, the Tibet issue really attracted a global interest. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it had a lot to do with that moment of triumphalism that people felt in Western liberal democracies. Uh, we blame Francis Fukuyama, but it's not just his fault. No, I think no, he was no, just no. the messenger. Um, and in any case, uh, what we saw was that Tibet became such a well-known issue globally, right? At that moment, it became tied to the MFN, most favored nation status debate. And the end result was, to my mind, the shrinkage of the issue. Before that, it was very common to hear conversations among elite Chinese scholars about the Tibet issue. Right? What do you She's mean exactly by the shrinkage of the issue? Well, through that process, uh, the way that Tibet could be uh, conceptualized and formulated became all about two things, human rights and religious freedom. And those two things have become the way that it's, it's, it's possible to talk about it and possible to imagine what is at stake. To the exclusion of what other to, important, do you think? To the exclusion of, for example, uh, how people in the region are actually perceiving what the problem is. So, for example, right, uh, here's the test that I think is, is helpful to think about. If all Tibetan political prisoners were released today, does the issue go away tomorrow, right? It doesn't, because the same people will write something, they'll, you know, post something, they'll do something that gets them back into jail within six months, a year, we, we see it all the time, 
right? And and then they're released, and then the entire community comes out to welcome them and and treats them like heroes, and then they'll do it again. So the, the, there's a, something uh, more at stake, more at issue, and and because we haven't been able to talk about it in these multifaceted, multidimensional ways, then we follow this this formula that doesn't help us, and and that, I think that's led to this uh, kind of moment where we have prominent Western scholars who really do embrace this conversation around liberal multiculturalism, like that's going to fix the problem, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Let's turn th- that same question to Xinjiang. I mean, do you do you think that there's also a danger when it comes to look at Xinjiang right now, uh, especially now, you know, with the, the Xinjiang atrocities happening at a, a very moment of extremely high tension between China and the United States, that this is sort of n- now a U.S.-China issue, or it's being maybe jumbled in and uh, packaged with a lot of other sort of U.S.-China bilateral issues. Well, certainly there's a lot of issues that have all come up at the same time, right? And right. it's interesting to see, you know, the, the strongest voices within the U.S. government, um, Senator Marco Rubio, um, uh, Vice President Pence, you know, th- those two voices most prominently have mentioned it. Pompeo, have uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, have mentioned the Xinjiang issues, not the president yet. Um, that's not really the point, but it's not coming that broadly from, well, it, it, it's not necessarily coming from traditional progressives or even the traditional human rights uh, people concerned about human rights in China, as much as it's coming, I think, sort of from a cold warrior kind of perspective, um, from people with strong concerns for you know, religious freedom, but coming from their own uh, religious belief, so from the Christian right, really. Right. And and so insofar as uh, those of us who are very, very concerned about what's going on in Xinjiang, um, you know, including the professorate now who work on this, you know, we're very, very pleased to see anybody talking about it at all and making it public at all. I think that's very important. But if it's going to be one among a raft of issues used to, you know, to, to bash China, China yeah. right, um, that I, I'm a little less sanguine about that. On the other hand, you know, these things need to be called out, right? And somebody is doing it. So I, I give credit to Senator Rubio in particular. There is a good, one um, possible sign on the horizon. Um, there is a bill now in Congress uh, called something like the um, Uyghur Rights, I've forgotten the actual name, but um, uh, uh, Uyghur Rights Recognition Act or something like mm. this. That's basically going to be, if it is passed and it has some bipartisan support in both houses, uh, it will be calling on uh, the administration to implement global Magnitsky sanctions and some other sorts of things. Um, and that is coming from um, a bipartisan background. It as yet doesn't have prominent Democratic Party sponsors. Have they drawn up a list of people? I, I just looked it up, uh, Jim. It's HR 7123, Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2018. Mm. Yes. Okay. And so that's, you know, that's there, and we're sort of waiting to see what, what, what happens with that. I mean, this is a big, this is a, a problem. I think we are at an inflection point in U.S.-China relations. A lot of former panda huggers are now questioning, maybe we're considering a trial separation from the panda hmm. uh, for some time. And yeah, I, it, is, it is being rolled into the broader story, absolutely. I don't know how that could be avoided. 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is fascinating stuff, Tashi and Jim. Both, it's it's great that you both took the time to to join us. Uh, we do need to get to recommendations. Before we do that, I'll very quickly remind our listeners that the Syndicate Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you enjoy all the work that we do, the best thing that you can do to to support us is to sign up for SubChina Access. You, your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you the reporting, the podcast conversations, the videos, the whole lot of it. Great. Now uh, on to recommendations, uh, Jeremy. Let's let's try to be economical here what do you have okay so mine is a little like a recent recommendation a graphic novel version of the epic of gilgamesh today i recommend paradise lost john milton's poem <laughs> in the graphic novel version by pablo uh Auladel. and i've been reading it with my daughter and it's really fun <laughs> right. well it's not fun it's actually <laughs> kind of weird but um you know i'll probably Maybe I've, uh, in fact, totally screwed her for life by reading her Paradise Lost at the age of six. But uh, I'm at least um, uh, being educated once again about this magnificent poem. Outstanding. Outstanding. Tashi, you're up next. What do you have for us? I'd like to recommend uh, the movie Mm. Jimpa which no, I don't not. know if you've um, had a chance to talk about on this uh, program yet, uh, but it's the latest film by the leading Tibetan filmmaker who's based in Beijing and in Xining, Bema uh, Tseden. And it's amazing. So it just won, um, he won um, the best screenplay at the Venice oh, International great. Film Festival. Yep, and I, I got a chance to see it in Toronto. It's not released yet in the US, but it will be uh, very soon in the coming months. Jimba, it's, it's called. Fantastic. Jimba. Jimba, yes. Great. Jimbo? <laughs> I knew you were going there, Kaiser. All right. Well, this is in the naked self-promotion category of recommendations, or at least, um, I suppose, familial uh, self-promotion. Um, I want to recommend, recommend another podcast for your listeners who, by ah. definition, like uh, smart, current events podcasts. And this is a new podcast that's released daily by The Washington Post. It's called uh, Post Reports. And my wife, Madulika Sika, is the executive producer, so that's why this is uh, self-promotion. But it's a wonderful 20-minute uh, uh, podcast that, it, it's not a rundown of the news, it usually has one story that's news of the day, and then a couple other really interesting things drawn from the pages of the post, but you get a conversation with the reporters. Uh, it's nicely produced, good music, wonderful voices. Um, I'm really enjoying it, uh, so I urge everyone to subscribe and listen. I will absolutely. I mean, I'm going to kick Michael Barbaro off of my uh, my phone and listen to this. Yes, we're not listening to other newspaper podcasts no, anymore. No, no more. They're gone. Awesome. Mine uh, is for Fulinmen Daohuaxiang Rice. You can. I've been you know searching around in in America for the best rice available commonly in these big chain uh, grocery stores, and I'm a big fan of the Dongbei rice of you know stuff that's grown in the black soil of Heilongjiang. Uh, you like you like the cadmium. Yeah. I love the cadmium, the delicious the cadmium, cadmium taste. Yeah. No, it's it's just amazing rice, though. Uh, Fulin Mun yeah, No, the cadmium is good, Kaiser. It, it, it's very <laughs> you know nice. me and heavy metal, <laughs> right? Uh, but <laughs> it's no, it's 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 really it's amazing rice. Uh, it has that kind of fragrance to it. It's medium grain. It's just it, where do you get it online? You can get it online. I've looked it up. You can buy it actually from a bunch of different stores. It's it's a bit pricey. It's about you know ten or eleven bucks for just a two kilogram bag. Uh, you can get you know big bags of it uh, at, at grocery stores. I pay about twenty bucks now for one of the big bags. I think they're, they're five kilo bags or something. Uh, but you know, well worth it if you're a rice guy as I am. I I got a lot of rice people in my family. I have to say so. My 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 son told me a joke the other day. He said, 
what do you call an Australian who's prejudiced against East Asian people? I said, what? A racist, he said. <laughs> Your son is already making dad jokes. <laughs> <Not that. laughs> and with that, okay. And with that, okay. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> jokes told to dad. Jing chu yu lan or sheng yu lan, right? Yeah, exactly. The apple don't fall far from the tree. Uh, Tashi, thank you so much. Uh, oh, thanks for delighted. having me. Delighted. Really appreciate Jim, it. Great. And yeah. thanks again. Jim, once, once great. Thanks, thanks, Tashi. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Kaiser. The Civica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and me. Special thanks this week to our guest, Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into a makeshift studio. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, and Ta for Ta. More great shows coming soon, and really soon. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.